thank you for coming tonight. I know some of you guys, uh, but not everyone. So a little bit about myself. Uh, my name's Kellen. I've been going to Purpose Church since I was, uh, since I was a baby, uh, but I haven't really had a chance to be a part of this community much yet. Uh, I go to school out in LA, and so during the school year, uh, I'm not able to make it back, but uh, I'm home for the summer, so really grateful to, yeah, be with you guys. Uh, Pastor Jason is in Japan right now, so uh, yeah, he's given me the opportunity to preach. I'm not a preacher or pastor by any means, uh, but I do feel like God's put something on my heart tonight to share. Uh, so yeah, so hopefully, uh, hopefully God's... Well, not hopefully. I know that God's going to work in, in this place tonight. So, uh, Okay, so tonight we're going to be launching off our series in the book of Philippians. Uh, the book of Philippians is an interesting book uh, because it's, it's written by Paul, and as many of you might know, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, uh, and a lot of those books that Paul wrote are letters, and Philippians is exactly that. It's a letter, but it's unlike some of uh, Paul's other letters in the sense that Many of Paul's other letters, he starts with a specific idea, and he basically builds that up all the way through to the end. So he starts and then builds to the end, where Philippians is a little bit different. Paul doesn't start with a specific idea and build all the way up. Instead, uh, it's essentially a compilation of little letters or vignettes uh, or something along the lines of that where uh, it all basically circles a poem that's in chapter two. So if you come in a couple weeks, you'll uh, really dive into that poem. But the poem's basically about, uh, about Jesus. It's about his, uh, his coming to earth and him dying on the cross and his resurrection. And so basically, uh, it's structured in a way where each of these little, little letters or vignettes that surround this poem uh, are essentially meaning to allow you to see your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. Uh, so with that being said, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive a little bit into the scripture for tonight. Father God, thank you so much for, um, for being with us tonight, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God um, on the highest mountains, but you're also a God with us in our lowest valleys. Um, and so tonight's sermon, Lord, is a little bit of what it looks like to find joy when we're going through suffering. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that uh, anything that's of me, God, uh, is just thrown off to the side um, and that uh, your Holy Spirit would work in this place tonight. We love you, and we pray uh, that our hearts would be willing to receive whatever you have for us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. So a central question I want you to keep in the back of your mind uh, as I'm talking tonight is what's holding you back from fully surrendering your life to God? What is that one thing you might have something that comes to mind right away? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, we'll dive into the first couple verses and then I'll give you a little bit of context on what the book of Philippians uh, is about, the who, what, when, where, and why. So the first couple verses, Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's involved in the book of Philippians? Uh, first, we've got the church of Philippi. That's who Paul's writing to. As you see, he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So he's talking specifically to the believers, the people who have given their lives to Christ. He also says, together with the overseers and deacons, uh, the overseers are general leadership in the Philippi church. The deacons are those with recognized positions of service in uh, the Philippi church. Uh, and then obviously, as we mentioned before, Paul is the author that, uh, that is writing everything. Uh, 
what exactly is Philippians? It's a big thank you letter, uh, but it has a whole lot more, especially encouragement on what it looks like to live for Christ and have joy even when we're going through tough circumstances. Paul wrote the book of Philippians around AD 61, uh, and he wrote it in response to, there was, uh, there was this guy that was part of the church of Philippi named Epaphroditus, and I believe he's only really mentioned in the book of Philippians, but he came and provided Paul with a gift. Uh, a little bit more context, Paul, he, he was in a Roman prison at the time where he's writing Philippians. So you can imagine that Paul is going through possibly one of the biggest periods of suffering in his life as he's writing this book. So also keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, and we already went through the structure, so we'll go ahead and dive into the next few verses. So verse number three, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse six says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse seven says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this brings us to point number one, and it's really what Paul is communicating uh, in verses three through five, and then again in seven through eight, is no matter the circumstances, we can find joy by working together to share the gospel uh, to those who don't know Jesus. And a lot of that has to do, you have to ask yourself, what type of Christian community am I a part of? And if the answer is none, then you're missing out on this joy that Paul is talking about. He's thinking of the Philippians, he's thinking of all the good things that the Philippians have done for him. Uh, they have a proven track record of generosity towards Paul. Uh, a little bit of what I was mentioning uh, before was, uh, or actually, I, I think I forgot to mention this. Uh, Paul has a history with the Church of Philippi. Uh, the Church of Philippi was one of the first churches that he established in East, Eastern Europe. And he spent a little bit of time in Philippi and got to know these people. So he loves them. He's basically been in community with these people, just as, just as you guys are doing right now. Uh, and as we can see, he expresses this immense amount of joy. Remember, he's in prison as he's writing this, and he says, his very first words are, I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So that first note is that we can find joy by being in community with other followers of Christ. And if we're not in community, we're missing out on that joy. Point number two leads us to verse number five, where, or sorry, verse number six, where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Here we can see that no matter the circumstances, the work that God has started in us uh, as followers of Christ cannot be stopped and will be carried on to completion. Many of you know this already, but the gospel uh, is exactly this. It's we are sinful people, but God is a perfect God. Our sins separated us from God, but Jesus took on flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't. Jesus was guiltless. He bore the punishment for our sins by being killed on a cross despite his innocence. Jesus was buried in a tomb, and three days later, the tomb was empty. Jesus was risen and the, in the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. Jesus conquered death, and because of him, we can be made right with God and enter relationship with him. All we must do is surrender our lives to the Lord. And then once we surrender our lives to God, Jesus starts to change our hearts. 
God's grace is fully given to us. Uh, we don't have to work for it anymore. And in the process, our hearts are being transformed through this idea of sanctification, which means we're becoming more and more like Jesus as we go throughout our lives. And Paul's writing here that this work in us is going to be completed. I mentioned before how, uh, how we can look at the book of Philippians and these little letters as an idea of us identifying with Jesus and his life. Uh, if we remember, Jesus also went through a time of suffering. Uh, right before he uh, went to the cross, he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, and he, he was in turmoil. He was suffering because of what was before him. But obviously, God had a plan, and Jesus knew what that plan was, and he trusted that that was going to be completed. Uh, and because of that, our sins are forgiven. And so we can look at Jesus as the hope and the confidence that that's going to happen in us too because we've surrendered our lives. If we've surrendered our lives to the Lord, uh, we're promised here that that's going to be carried out to completion. So this carries us to the next set of verses, and it says in verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11 says, filled with the fruit and righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I forgot to have uh, the next point up on the screen, uh, so we're just going to hang out with the verse right there. But the next point was, the gospel pulls us out of a blind love and into a love that is able to detect what is good. And being able to detect what is good is another way that we can find joy. The Philippians were clearly loving. We've already established that Paul has this history with the Philippians, and he knows them as a loving people. But we see Paul continually praying uh, for more and more love for them. Uh, and I think this teaches us that in our Christian life, even once we've surrendered our lives to God, uh, there, isn't, there isn't an end point until we reach that point where we meet, we meet Jesus and we spend eternity with him. There's always more and more love that we can show people. There's always more and more grace. There's always more and more truth that we can share. Uh, so we can keep moving on and just, and Paul knows this and he's praying for more and more love for the Philippians. Uh, but he's also not praying for any sort of blind love. If you notice, he's saying, uh, he's praying that their love will continue to abound and he says that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He's praying for more and more knowledge and depth of insight. And I think what he's hitting on here is a little bit, he's talking about, he's praying for more and more wisdom for them. He's praying that they'll have the wisdom to be able to see what is good in this world and what is bad, and to be able to speak out against what is bad and to lean more into what is good. Uh, one of the best definitions of wisdom that I think I've ever heard, uh, if some of you have heard of uh, Pastor Tim Keller before, uh, he says that wisdom is, is essentially this, it's the ability to make the right choice when the moral rules don't apply anymore. So he's essentially saying wisdom's the ability to choose what's right, to choose what God's calling us towards, even when both options that are in front of us from a moral uh, perspective, the world would look at us and say, you could pick either one and that's okay. Both are right, both are good. Wisdom gives us the ability to seek after what God wants and helps us to choose the option that God is actually calling us towards so that we can live more fully in the plan that he has for us. And the reality is that when, when we have that wisdom and we're able to make those decisions, uh, God's continually pulling us closer to him, and being closer to him enables us to have more joy. So this brings us to the next part of our passage, to verse 12. It says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, but what has happened, or brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul's saying that no matter the circumstances, God is working his ultimate good, and that and knowing that, us knowing that fact that no matter what happens in our lives, God's working his ultimate good, that can bring us joy, or will bring us joy. Paul says uh, an interesting little nugget that we can pick up here is Paul, in, in verse 12, he's reassuring the Philippians. Uh, a story from Acts 16, where uh, it was Paul's first time visiting, uh, visiting the Philippians, where he first established the church in Philippi. Uh, Paul was also going through a time in prison, uh, and he uh, was with another missionary with him named Silas. It was midnight, and they were singing songs of joy. Uh, they were singing songs of joy to the Lord, and all of a sudden, God brought this earthquake. Uh, it tore down, um, essentially, their chains and tore down the bars that were holding them in. Uh, and at the time, there was a Roman guard that saw that they were about to escape. He was about to kill himself because he just failed at his job. Uh, and Paul and Silas looked at him and told him that he was okay, that everyone was still there, and this Roman guard then gave his life to the Lord at the time. So what's interesting about that story is the Philippians might be thinking, as they see Paul in prison, as they, as they see him going through this time of suffering, they might be thinking, has God completely abandoned Paul? Has God forgotten about Paul? Has, uh, is Paul's relationship with God completely broken? Because why isn't God breaking him out of prison this time? Why isn't he releasing him from his suffering this time when he did it the last time? Uh, what's interesting here is that God was using Paul's chains for a greater good, and Paul knew that, so that brought him joy. Paul didn't need God to release him from prison to understand that God was doing a greater work in his life, and he was able to understand that. Uh, and again and again, it seems repetitive, but that's, that's the message tonight, joy and suffering. Paul was able to experience joy because of that. But how exactly was Paul experiencing joy? We see in verses 13 through 14, uh, people were becoming confident. Uh, in seeing Paul's ability to boldly proclaim Jesus even when he was going through his suffering, they were becoming confident that they could do the same, that, uh, that they could go out and share the gospel with other people. Uh, and so this forces us to ask ourselves a question of when you're going through suffering or trials of your own, is it clear to others that your faith is in Jesus? Do your periods of suffering produce good fruit in other people? I'll ask it again. When you're going through suffering or trials of your own, is it clear to others that your faith is in Jesus? Uh, in my own life, I experienced this last summer uh, with my sister and my brother-in-law. They were pregnant at the time with their first child, and we were all super excited uh, for, uh, well, I was excited for a new nephew, um, and my parents were excited for a new grandchild, and so on and so on. Uh, and at the time, they were going through some complications in their pregnancy, uh, but they had a specific doctor's appointment scheduled for the beginning of August last year, uh, expecting things to go well, but uh, they went into their doctor's appointment and found out that they had lost their baby. Uh, and so my sister had to go uh, through labor at the time, and, uh, and this was not what they expected at all. This was one of the lowest moments in their life. And I remember texting my sister the next morning after all this had happened. Uh, all of us were heartbroken, and I texted her. I said, I don't understand why this is happening, and I hate it. Uh, and my sister responded, I don't understand it either, uh, but God is good. 
And hearing that really uh, inspired me to then lean more into the Lord and find joy even through a tough circumstance. Uh, at the time, I was about to start a new, uh, a new period in my life. Um, uh, as some of you know, I started school out in LA last year, and I was pretty nervous entering uh, a new space, having to make new friends, and, and so on and so on. Uh, and, and hearing that, I was starting school that following Thursday, and this all happened on a Friday, the Friday or Saturday before. Uh, and I can't even fully explain uh, how this was the case, but I showed up to school the next week, and this carried on for months and months, and I just had so much energy to share Jesus with, with my friends and the new people I met. Uh, I basically was encouraged, and I was revitalized to, to lean more into the Lord and to share, uh, to share the hope that I had found in Christ with everyone around me. And I bring this up because it's exactly what happened here that Paul's describing. Because of his chains and because of his ability to lean into the Lord, the people around him were able to more boldly proclaim the name of Christ. And so that's a good thing. But at the same time, there's, there's a problem. And we'll see that uh, in the next, the next few verses. I'll move on to verse 15. It says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Verse 18 says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So is there really a problem? Because it it seems like there might be a problem. It, Paul is talking about people that are preaching the word of God from the wrong motives. But he also points out that the content they're preaching, they're still proclaiming the gospel in the right. Uh, they're still saying what's biblically correct. Uh, they're still talking about Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, still encouraging people to give their lives up to the Lord. And so Paul says he's okay with that. In one sense, they're preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. Uh, they're trying to stir up trouble for Paul. Uh, Paul was stuck in prison, and one of the things that they might have been trying to do was they were trying to make a name for, this, for themselves. Paul had been known as this, uh, as this amazing pastor who was able to effectively share the word of God, uh, but now Paul was in prison and not necessarily able to do that himself from the most effective perspective. And so this was their opportunity to, to share Jesus and to essentially beat Paul on that totem pole. Their motives were in the wrong sense, but they were still proclaiming the name of the Lord. And so even if they had beaten Paul on that, that totem pole, Paul didn't care because the gospel was being preached. Paul also trusted that the Lord would take care of whatever wrongful motives they had, uh, that the Lord would take care of that. It wasn't Paul's concern. His only concern was that the gospel was being preached, and that was good. We move on to the next set of verses. It says, uh, and this is what Blake so graciously read for us tonight. Uh, it says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful, fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This leads us into, into our next key point. It says, from a worldly perspective, this was a hard time in Paul's life, but he knew God was working a hard time to produce something greater. And this brought him, once again, a lot of joy. The gospel was being preached all around, just like we were talking about just a second ago. But another little cool nugget is what Paul was able to achieve while he was in his chains uh, in Rome. Paul, during this time, he wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote the book of Colossians, and he wrote the book of Philemon. If you've been joining us on Sunday mornings uh, in the main service, you know that we're going through a series where we're trying to spot where's Jesus in each of the books of the Bible. We haven't quite gotten to the New Testament before, but, uh, but I figured I'd read out where Jesus is in each of these books that Paul wrote during a time of suffering. In Ephesians, Paul writes, Jesus, our peace with God. Uh, in Philippians, Paul writes about Jesus, our joy and suffering, like we've been talking about tonight. In Colossians, he writes, Jesus, our head of all things. And in Philemon, he writes, Jesus, our source of reconciliation. So good things were happening within Paul's suffering. He had the opportunity to, to see that God was working a hard time to produce something greater. This leads us into the next point. It says, no matter the circumstances, our focus should be on Christ. And in every moment of our lives, our goal should be to exalt Jesus. We then experience intimacy with Christ because of this. Verse 20, uh, I'll read it out again. It says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter the circumstances, whether by life or by death, Paul had one goal, and it was that Christ would be exalted. So the question we need to ask ourselves now is how often is this the focus in our own daily lives? How often do we ask ourselves if we're exalting Christ as we go throughout our days? If I'm being completely honest with you, that's not always the case in my own life. I get caught up in school, I get caught up in work, friendships, other relationships in my own life. Um, I even get caught up in truly less important things like sports uh, and whether my favorite team has won the latest game or stuff like that. But the reality for Paul was that Jesus was his one and only focus. All that other stuff didn't matter. So this leads us uh, into verses 22 through 26, uh, which I already read out. Uh, and we can see that Paul, he was torn between two things. Option one was he could go on living and be released from prison. And in this case, he could go on continuing to proclaim the name of the Lord. He can go on to continue to share Jesus with as many people as possible. He could continue starting these Jesus communities, these churches in the various uh, cities that he was visiting. Or option two was execution. And weirdly, Paul writes about execution and he says, that's better. He says, that's better because he gets to finally be with Christ. And so isn't that our ultimate goal too? Isn't it our ultimate goal to finally be with Christ as well? And so we read these, and they seem like drastically different options. One's being released from prison, and the other's being executed and killed. But the reality is they're a lot more similar than you might think at first thought. 
Either way, Paul is sacrificing his life for God. And in both instances, he's experiencing intimacy with Christ. I read a little bit of the little notes at the bottom of my Bible, and one of the commentaries said, if you're not ready to die, then you're not ready to live. Matthew 16, 25 says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Another set of verses that I wanted to read out, uh, which if some of you were at HSM, you heard this last night as well, um, leading in the high school ministry. Uh, It writes in the book of Matthew, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Uh, Verse 44 in Matthew chapter 13 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. I also wanted to bring us to Luke chapter 9, and this is a set of verses that I've wrestled with Uh, for the past few years, and uh, Jesus writes uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse, let's see, 59. So uh, Jesus was essentially walking around and discipling people, and people were coming up to Jesus and asking him what it would take to follow him. Verse 59, he said, uh, it says, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. On first reading, that seems pretty harsh. This guy is coming up to Jesus and he says, I wanna follow you, and Jesus says, yeah, come follow me. And the guy responds, okay, but I just have to do one thing. Just let me go bury my father. Let me go bury my dead father and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus responds, no, you can't go bury your father. You have to surrender everything to me and come follow me. Like I said, that seems really, really harsh at first, but I don't think Jesus was, as I've thought about this, I don't think Jesus was super concerned with whether or not this guy got a chance to go bury his father or not. I think Jesus might have been okay with that, but I I do believe that Jesus knew where that guy's heart was at, and he knew that he hadn't fully surrendered everything to the Lord. And because of that, when the guy said, I'll come follow you, but then he had a precondition before actually coming to follow Jesus, Jesus said that's, that's not enough. So Jesus does offer us grace and it is a free gift, uh, but there is a cost to it. We do, he is calling us to surrender everything to him. And when we read the book of Philippians, that's exactly the posture that Paul had. We see all these different ways that we can find joy in the Lord even when we're in our deepest moments in life, when we're in our deepest valleys. But the reality is we're not gonna find that joy if we haven't actually surrendered everything to God. And by everything, he's asking for more than 95%. He's asking for more than 99.9%. He's literally asking for everything. So the question I posed at the beginning, what's holding you back from fully surrendering everything to Christ? What's that thing in your life that's holding you back from fully surrendering everything? Because the reality is, until you can surrender everything, you're not really living the life that God intended for you. And within that, by not living the life that God intended for you, you're missing out on joy, you're missing out on confidence in Christ, you're missing out on peace that you can have, and this is even in suffering, this is even in the lowest moments of your life. 
Surrendering our lives to Christ enables us to fully live out exactly how God planned us to live here on earth. So this leads us into the next, to the next paragraph. Once we've fully surrendered everything, we have a call that Paul gives us. Verse 27 says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28 says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it, is, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Verse 30 says, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So what's the call that Paul gives us? He says, no matter what, live your life in a way that it's abundantly clear to everyone around you that you've surrendered everything to Christ. And how do we do this? Paul says we need to stand firm, we strive together, and we're not frightened by opposition, but we keep pushing forward. Uh, and largely, that's in the context of communities just like this one. We need to trust that people around us will notice and then take those opportunities that God gives us to share what God has done in our lives. And then verse 29 or 30, I don't know if you caught it, it says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That word granted, it's our privilege to suffer for Christ. We get to further identify him, with him, and when we further identify with him, we experience more intimacy with him, and there's nothing better in life than that. I had a little excerpt from, uh, I don't know if some of you guys have ever read uh, the book Forgotten God by Francis Chan, um, but there's a story in there that uh, if I've spent some time with you, I've probably read it to you or shared it with you at some point. Um, I share it with it's, it's my biggest talking point, probably. Uh, so Francis Chan writes, I recently had dinner in Seoul, Korea with an amazing man. He was one of the 23 missionaries who were held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan in July 2007. For those who don't recall the story, the Taliban executed two of the missionaries before a deal was reached with the government of South Korea and the missionaries were released. This man told me about the horrors of being locked up in a cell, knowing that martyrdom was, uh, was a strong possibility. He also shared about the amazing time they had on the last day they were all in prison together. Their captors later divided them into groups of three and took them to remote areas to release them. Each of the 23 missionaries surrendered their lives to God that night, the night before they were released, and told him they were willing to die for his glory. There was even an argument over who would get to die first. One of them had a small Bible that the missionary secretly ripped into 23 pieces so each could just glance at scripture when no one was watching. The word of God and the spirit of God got them through the 40 days of imprisonment. One of the most fascinating things this man told me about what has happened since they were released uh, was that now, they have, now that they have been back in, in Seoul, South Korea for a while, several team members have asked him, don't you wish we were still there? He tells me that several of them experienced a deep kind of intimacy with God in the prison cell that they haven't been able to recapture in their comfort. This is the precious gift of intimacy the Holy Spirit offers us. It is a security that is priceless and worth any loss of safety and comfort, even imprisonment by the Taliban. It's in our uncomfortable moments, it's in our suffering that God draws us closer and closer to him, and it's in those times that we can truly experience 
deep, deep intimacy with him in the way that we're gonna experience when we're finally in heaven with the Lord, spending eternity with him. But we must surrender everything in order to experience that intimacy. And when we're going through times of suffering, this wasn't a sermon to discount what some of you might be going through right now, because it absolutely is hard. It, it absolutely is hard, but we do have a hope that we can cling to, um, just as Paul writes about in the Philippians chapter one. All right, I'm gonna pray real quick. Father God, thank you so much for all that you do for us. Thank you for uh, the love that you've shown us and uh, the way you've watched, um, you've watched over our weeks, Lord. Um, once again, we just thank you that you're the God of the mountaintops, you're the God in the valleys. When we're going through suffering, Lord, we can cling to you. We can cling to the communities that, uh, that we're fortunate to be a part of and the other believers in this room and outside of this room, Lord, that, uh, that support us, God. Um, and I pray that we'd remember as we go home tonight, Lord, uh, to think about what's that one thing that's holding us back from surrendering everything to you, God. I pray that we'd be able to experience the joy that Paul talks about uh, in the first chapter of Philippians and that that would change the way we live our lives, Lord. Um, and that that might even inspire other people to then share the gospel in their own communities, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all you do for us. And in your name we pray, amen.